Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. invite you now to open your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians. If you've been with us in these Sunday evening services, you know we've been working our way through this letter to the Christians of Colossae, and tonight we're arriving at chapter 3. As you're turning there, just remind you, Colossae is a church that Paul had not visited. He had not seen these believers in person, but he's heard of their faith in Christ, and he cares deeply for this group of believers. In fact, in chapter 2, he said that he was striving with all of his energy out of his care and concern for this church to warn them against false teaching that might pull them from the gospel and to encourage their hearts and the knowledge of Christ. And so here is Paul writing to this church at Colossae. In chapter 2, Paul specifically confronted the false teaching that uh, they were facing there in Colossae. He urged the Colossians not to be drawn to human traditions, to Old Testament ceremonial laws, or to any human effort or regulation that was aimed at bringing about moral purity in us. And he urged them not to let their focus turn to angels, demons, or elementary spirits of this world. Their hope, he said, would not come from any one of these human philosophies or any one of these human efforts or human ideas. Their hope would come from their union with Christ by faith. Now, union with Christ was perhaps the central doctrinal jumping off place for chapter 2, but Paul's not done talking about our union with Christ. In fact, it forms the entire basis of his thoughts in chapter 3 as well, as he begins to spin out the implications of a believer's union with Christ. And so tonight I want to move on to chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, where we will see this doctrine at play once again. Would you follow with me as we read Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4? Listen as we read God's Word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Father, this is your word that's written to us, and so we would ask you now that your spirit would give us understanding, that we might know Christ and the riches, all the treasures and riches of wisdom and knowledge of Christ. As we look at your word together, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know how many of you uh, have read Mark Twain's children's book, The Prince and the Pauper. Mark Twain is well known for Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer, but The Prince and the Pauper is always one of my favorites in this story. Tom Canty, the youngest son of a very poor and very oppressive family in London, and Prince Edward heir to the throne of England, happened to meet one day. 
And their chance meeting reveals that these two boys, despite their very different circumstances, look almost exactly alike. And as they strike up a conversation, they find that their birthday happens to be the same day as well. And so learning that they were born on the same day and they look very similar, and Prince Edward being a rather adventurous sort, he hatches a plan for them to swap clothes and swap places just for a day or two to see what it's like. Unfortunately for Edward, the ploy works far better than he'd bargained for, and no one believes that Tom is really Edward or that Edward is really Tom, no matter what they protest. And the humor of the story comes from the fact that even though they'd switched places, they can't hide who they really are because their true nature is revealed in the way that they live. Tom the youngest son of the poor family, has no idea about court manners. He doesn't remember a single thing from the royal education, and he can't dance, all of which are a problem for the prince of England. And so the king and the courtiers conclude that he must be ill and suffering amnesia. Meanwhile, Edward is off in the slums of London speaking with authority and commanding everybody around him what they ought to be doing and acting uppity in his royal sort of way, much to the offense of those around him. Because who you really are will naturally lead to certain actions, lifestyles, expectations in your life. That's the truth that drives the prince and the pauper, but it's also the truth that drives Paul's argument here in Colossians chapter 3. If I could boil down the main argument of these four verses, I think Paul's point is this. If you have been raised with Christ, if that is your identity, if that is true of you, then your affections and your focus ought to be with Christ, not on the things of this earth. That's a central point. If you have been raised with Christ, your affections and your focus ought to be with Christ, not on the things of this earth. In order to unpack this point, Paul states what is true of us if we're united to Christ, how we ought to respond if this is who we are in Christ, and what hope we can expect if we're united to Christ. And so that's our outline tonight. The facts of what's true of us, the response that we ought to have, and the hope that's before us. That's our outline tonight. So let's jump in and begin with the facts. What is true of us if we are united to Jesus Christ? Well, if we have believed the good news of Jesus, that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and was raised from the dead for our salvation, Paul says three things are true of us. Note each of them. Verse 1, here's the first thing that's true of us. Paul says, if we have put our faith in Christ, we have been raised with Christ. That's fact number one. Now, before we dig into that, I want you to just note that verse 1 does not apply to everyone in the world. I don't know many of you tonight, so I don't know if verse 1 applies to everyone here in this room tonight. But you note that it's a conditional statement. If you have been raised with Christ. Well, how do you know if you've been raised with Christ? Well, the answer could be found back up in Colossians chapter 2. If your Bibles are open in front of you and you look back up to Colossians chapter 2 verse 12, Paul tells us that you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God 
who raised Christ from the dead. In other words, faith is what brings about this state of being raised with Christ. Specifically, faith in God's power and God's promise to redeem anyone who believes and entrusts himself to Christ's work on your behalf. And so we would have to state at the beginning tonight, if you have not staked your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then this passage, these facts are not yet true of you. Although you are freely invited to come to Christ by faith, that they might be true of you. You are freely invited to turn from your ways and turn from sin and to follow Christ in faith and receive this salvation. But we just have to note right up front, there is a condition here. But if you are in Christ by faith, then the first fact of your condition is this, you have been raised with Christ. Now, I think it's very significant that Paul does not say, if you have trusted Christ in faith, you will be raised with Christ. That is true, but that's not what he says here. And that's not what Paul is drawing our attention to here. He says, you have been raised with Christ. And the question that I would have for us tonight, as we're sitting in a pew on a November night in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, is do you think of yourself as already having been raised with Christ? if you have put your faith in him. Because that's what Paul says here. And it's not what he says just here. It's actually the consistent message of Paul's letters across the New Testament. Maybe you would think of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. Puts it even more strongly there. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you notice the tenses again? They're past tense. If you have put your faith in Christ, God has made you alive, has raised you up with Christ, and has seated you with him in the heavenly places. This is what is true of us who are in Christ by faith. Well, what does it mean? What does it mean that you have been raised with Christ. It means that right now, by faith, you have been united to Christ by the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit living in you. And just think of what happens when God's Holy Spirit comes to live in you. When the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, he brings you from death to life. In the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, there's one of the most beautiful images of the valley of dead bones, dry bones. Ephesians says in our sin, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But God makes the promise that one day by the power of his spirit, he's going to make those dead bones alive again. See, that's what happens when we put our faith in Christ and his Holy Spirit comes to live in us. Our dead, dry bones become a living being. We go from dead in trespasses and sins to alive as a new creation in Christ. And that new life that we have isn't just random new life. It is Christ's own life at work in us by the presence of his Holy Spirit. In other words, the core of who you are if you have put your faith in Christ is no longer an of this earth and of this flesh person, but in of heaven and of the Spirit of God in Christ person because we've been united to Christ by his Holy Spirit. 
Our identity, our belonging is in the heavenly places in communion with God, not on earth and the value system of this world. And it's because we have been raised from death to life with Christ. So that's the first fact that Paul says is true of us by faith, that we have been raised with Christ. Resurrection life, Christ's resurrection life is at work in us. Well, in verse 3, Paul gives us a second fact that's true of us in Christ. If you look down to verse 3, Paul says, for you have died. Now, this shouldn't surprise us at all if we're familiar with Scripture and the New Testament, because death and resurrection go together. Death and resurrection always go together for God's people because they went together for Christ. Christ died and then was raised. There was no resurrection glory for Christ without death on the cross first. The way up came through going down. Life required death. And if that was true of Christ, isn't that what we should expect of those who are united to Christ as well? Isn't that what we should expect for Christ's people if that is true of him? And again, this is the consistent message of the New Testament, isn't it? That when you put your faith in Christ and are united to him by the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit living in you, your former self of sin dies. It is crucified and put to death with Christ. Think of Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is one of the most beautiful verses in the New Testament. But if you don't know anything about Christ, this verse doesn't make any sense at all. In college, I was a uh, classical languages major, so I sat around translating Latin and Greek uh, for my major. There was some question about what I might do with that in life, I realized, but we had this Greek professor. She was, I think, in her 50s at the time, and she was nowhere close to breaking five foot tall. And she was not a believer. But she knew that most of the students learning Greek from her were believers, and they were learning Greek because they wanted to read the New Testament. So she said to us one day, she said, I'll meet with you once a week, and we could translate through the book of Galatians. And I distinctly remember we came to Galatians 2.20, and I don't remember if it was me or one of my friends that translated, and we translated, and she just sat there, and she looked at it, and she said, it's what it says. I don't know what that means. And then she moved on. Because if you don't know Christ and what it means for the Son of God to die in order to be raised to resurrection glory, this doesn't make sense. But it is, if you know Christ and who he is and what he has done, this makes perfect sense. That dead sinners must be made alive. And when we are made alive, our old man is crucified with Christ. And it's no longer alive. Now, Christ and his life is the, the, the life that defines who I am. Paul says it again in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. You see the same pattern? Death in order to find life. We die in order to share in his life. 
And of course, this only makes logical sense as well. If you have two things that are entirely opposed to one another, you can't belong to both of them and be pursuing both of them at the same time. Think of, think of World War II when you had the Axis forces and the German Nazis and you had the Allied forces opposing them. And there were times when you had German citizens who said, I cannot fight for the Nazi regime. And they worked against them and for the Allied powers. But could you imagine a German trying to say, well, you know, I kind of like the Nazis and I kind of like the Allies and I'll kind of try to do some." Of course not. That's definitionally impossible. Not only are they at war with one another, they are fundamentally opposed to one another and what they were, uh, what they were standing for and working for. To work for one, you had to be dead to the other. And the same is true when it comes to sin and death and the life of Christ. If we're going to live in union and communion with God, we must die to sin and the things of this earth. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 6. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. We have died. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Do you hear that union with Christ? We die with Christ to our old self and sin so that we might live with him. Being united to Christ means our former self that was dead in sin has died and a new self, a new creation by the power of the Spirit has been raised with Christ. That's fact number two. Fact number two, you've been raised with Christ. Or sorry, fact number one, you've been raised with Christ. Fact number two that is only logical, your old self has died. But there's a third fact that Paul gives us. It's also in verse three. Having died to your old self, having been raised with Christ, Paul says, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's the third fact that is true of us if we are in Christ. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And this is just a glorious statement of the intimacy of our communion with God if we have come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. See, Paul doesn't say we're attached to Christ. He doesn't say we're walking alongside of Christ. No, he says we are hidden. We are hidden with Christ in God. That is a, a full union and communion with Christ in God. Now, this is, not sort of, this is not some sort of Eastern mysticism. If you know anything about Eastern mysticism, the whole goal is to sort of be melted back into the one spirit being of the universe in that sort of full reunion. That, that's not what we're talking about here. Not that we, not that we kind of disappear into the, the one uh, spirit of the universe. No, What's pictured here is an intimacy of relationship. The analogy here is marriage where two become one. The two become one flesh. Even more does our identity and life become wrapped up completely in the life of Christ and our communion with God through him. C.S. Lewis in, in his book, Mere Christianity, put it so well when he says, the whole purpose of Christianity is simply nothing else than each of us coming to share in the life of Christ by entering the three personal dance of God and so living forever with him and in him. 
Christianity is nothing else than to be united to the life of the triune God through Jesus Christ. And that is such a, a blessed promise that we would be hidden with Christ and God. I think this is one of the reasons that Paul calls us citizens of heaven. Citizens of heaven. Why are we citizens in heaven? Because we are already fully united to God who is the king of heaven. Think of Philippians 3.20 where he writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you notice again the tenses? It's not someday we're going to be a citizen of heaven. It is we are citizens of heaven. That is already where our identity is by virtue of our union with Christ. In fact, he says that we are waiting from heaven. Isn't this, this striking? We are waiting from heaven or from our citizenship in heaven for our Savior to come and bring us back there. It's a striking, it's a striking grammatical statement. We are citizens of heaven and from it, from that citizenship in heaven, we're waiting for our Savior to bring us home there. When I read this, I couldn't help but think of the American citizens who are being held hostage in Gaza right now. This place of danger, under siege, without basic humanitarian supplies in many places, but they are American citizens. Their citizenship is here. And from that citizenship, from that identity, they are waiting for a rescue. It's only a small picture. But how much more for us, though our location here is on earth, though this is where we're living right now, how much more is our identity and our citizenship in heaven, having been united to and hidden in God himself with Christ? That's where we belong. That is our citizenship. That is our identity. And we are waiting there for our Savior to bring us home. So here we have these three facts. What's true of you if you have come to Jesus Christ by faith, that you have been raised with him, you have died with him, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. But if that's, if that's the case, if all of that is true of us in Christ, Paul says, well, there's a natural and logical way we ought to respond. If your identity changes, the way you live should change. And I think perhaps a, a marriage is a great uh, analogy here. When you go from being single to getting married, your new identity and your new relationship and union with your spouse naturally and logically is going to change some of the ways you live and behave and relate to others. You're not going to go out all night with the guys on the spur of the moment every night anymore. Nor would it be appropriate for a married man to go on a, on a date with another woman because she's a fun girl to hang out with. You might have been able to do that in your single years, not when you're married. The way you live, behave, and act changes in light of this change of relationship and union and identity. And in a similar way, dying to our old self and being raised with Christ in union and communion with God means a change in how we live. And we see that first in verse 1. Look at verse 1. Paul says, If you've been raised with Christ, if that's true of you, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Now the word for seek, maybe you think of hide and seek when you think of seek. What is the word seek getting at? It describes what we value or desire or are pursuing. The word for seek. It's a word that's related to our affections, we seek that which we treasure, we love, 
or we long for. And so Paul says, set your affections on the things that are above. Pursue the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. And then he adds in verse 2, set your minds on things that are above. That is, focus on, focus your thoughts and your attention on the things that are above. And so what Paul's saying is our hearts and what we desire and long for and our minds and what we think on and focus on are to be set above where Christ is. That's the natural and logical response to this identity we have in Christ. I wonder if you can hear the psalmist in these verses. Set your uh, minds on things that are above. Seek the things that are above. You remember what the psalmist said? As the deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O my God. My soul thirsts for you, O God, for the living God. Or Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Do you hear the heart of the psalmist in this call of Paul to seek the things that are above? Set your minds on the things that are above. Why? Because Christ is there. And you are united to Christ. That's where you belong. That's your home. That's your citizenship. It's who you are. Your life is in him. Paul adds, just as we should instinctually desire and pursue the things above where Christ is, we should also naturally and logically not desire or pursue or set our minds on the things on earth. You see that uh, there in verse 2. Set your minds on things above, not on the things that are on earth. After all, we've died to this world. We've died to our flesh. We've died to sin. We stop setting our minds or our focus on earth's stuff and its offerings. We don't let that dominate our thinking or desires because we're dead to that realm. That's not who we are anymore. Now, maybe a a brief clarification is is in order. I, I still remember talking something uh, about this on a youth retreat years ago, and uh, a student saying, but, but Chris, I do enjoy some things on this earth. I like eating good food. I like playing sports. Am I supposed to not like those things anymore? Since it says, don't set your minds on things on earth uh, anymore. It's, it's a good question. You might say, I love taking hikes on, on fall days. How could you not want to be out in the beauty of, uh, of creation? Or I love going out to dinner with good friends. Or I love watching football with my family. Are these wrong because they're things on this earth? And of course, the answer to that uh, is no. And we need to get more clarification on Paul's point. Paul's point is not that we reject anything that happens on earth. Because there are many things that happen on earth that are good gifts from the Lord. The psalmist clarifies that, that God is the one who has given us good food and drink. 1 Timothy 4 reminds us that God's good gifts are to be received with thanksgiving. And when we receive them in this life with thanksgiving, they are good and they give glory to him. So it's not that we're to reject anything that happens on earth. Rather, we are to reject anything that is of earth. Not everything that happens on earth, but everything that is of earth. And Paul is getting at an antithesis here, that earth 
and this world and heaven where Christ is are different realms, different ways of thinking, and different in their orientation toward God. Heaven is those things rooted in God and in Christ, whereas the earth is those things that are set against God and in rebellion to him. And it is the things of earth that we are to reject. So to set our minds on this earth in Paul's thinking is to pursue meaning, value, hope, and joy from this life and what this earth has to offer and its self-sufficiency against God. Whereas to set our minds on things above is to find our meaning, our value, our hope, and our joy from God in Christ, from who He is and what He has done and what He has given. It's to say, I desire things above where Christ is. They will lead to joy and rescue me from the brokenness of sin and death. So we need to, to recognize what's being said here. And if I could hazard a guess... I would guess that the greatest temptation for us tonight is not maybe that we are tempted to completely set our gaze fully on earth rather than on Christ, but rather that we're regularly tempted to try to straddle the fence and to try to get what we like from both. I think if we look around the church, it's easy to say, yes, of course we want Christ but I really like these things of the world too. Of course I love God, but I'd really like to just fit in with everyone around me here on this earth too. Of course, I love God and I, and, and I, and I love his salvation, but it would also be really great if I could make enough money to be comfortable here. And if I could just enjoy and find community and gossiping about everyone around me, and if I, could, if I could pretty much be able to do whatever I want to in life now, that would be ideal, right? If I could live for myself now and love God. And that's the temptation we see so often in the church. Or maybe, maybe it's that we find ourselves continuing to let our eyes gravitate back to the things of this world. I hope I'm not uniquely weak in my moral willpower when it comes to a plate of cookies. But have you ever been in that situation where you take a cookie and you're just sitting there talking and you don't even realize how your hand keeps going back to the plate of cookies? And sometimes you, don't e- you even think to yourself, I don't want any more cookies, I'm full. And then the next thing you know, it's almost like some separate will, your hand is moving toward the cookie, cookie plate to, to eat another one. Well, that's a bit the way our hearts are as well. With their born pull towards sin in the flesh as they are constantly lured back to the things of this earth. And we need to constantly check our hearts. I can think about how easy it is for me to go from maybe enjoying something legitimately that happens here on earth to loving it and finding my value in it and letting my eyes slip from Christ and the things that are above. I can go from saying, I want to work diligently to provide for my family, but then expenses come up and there's something I'd really like for our house. And the more I think about it, the more I get wrapped up in finances and the anxieties of them and the desires of them. And all of a sudden I realize I need to set my gaze back on Christ because they've gotten wrapped up in the things of this earth. We can put all sorts of, of examples in this, but it is so easy for us to go from living in this world 
to living of this world and setting our gaze on the things of this world rather than on Christ. And so if I can challenge us tonight, there's no straddling the fence between heaven and the things of this earth, between Christ and sin. We need to not set our hearts and minds on this earth, but rather set them above where Christ is, where we have been raised with him. This is what Paul reminds us. Know where your heart is. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of earth, for you've died to that life, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Well, there's one final thing. We've seen the facts that are true of us. We've seen how we are to respond in seeking, pursuing, longing for, and setting our minds on the things above. But finally, Paul ends by declaring our hope. You see it there in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. By this point, I think it only makes sense, given all that we have said, that if we are united with Christ, when he appears in glory, we will appear in glory with him. That's what we've been saying all along, that when we're united with Christ, what is true of him becomes true of us. So when he appears in glory, if we're united to him, we will appear with him in glory. Since he is our life and we're hidden in him, when he comes and he establishes his kingdom, we will be with him. Precisely because we have been raised with Christ, one day we will bodily be raised with Christ. See, what's true of us in our union with Christ now is the basis for the hope of what will happen to us when he comes again on that last day. And it is perhaps true that if someone were just to call out to us, hey, you want to come and die to yourself, that might not be a very attractive messaging campaign, would it? Come and die to yourself. Unless we realize what this death means, that if we've put our faith in Christ, we die as he died to death and sin and the desires of our flesh and the course of this world so that we might live as he lives, having been raised with Christ, that when he appears, we will also appear with him to live with him in glory. That's an attractive messaging campaign. Die to death that you might live with Christ in glory forever. What a hope that is. It's really stunning good news, and it's the kind of stunning good news that can carry us through this life. I don't know what's happening in each of your lives right now, but I know some things that are happening around the world, and I know the kinds of things we face. And so when the walls are crashing down around us, when we look at the news stories and we witness an evil and a wickedness at a, at a sickening level, when our health fails and we live in pain, when relationships are strained and we're surrounded by conflict, or when loved ones are lost, in other words, when the brokenness of this world overwhelms us and the pressures of this life leave us weary and exhausted, this is the hope that we have. When Christ, who is your life, appears, we also will appear with him in glory. What can all of this broken world do to us if the promise we have is when Christ appears, we also will appear with him in glory? I hope that this 
This is a comfort to us as his people. But let me conclude with this. Because as much as I hope that this truth of the gospel is comforting to us, I don't want us to leave here with our gaze focused on ourselves and our life. Because union with Christ is all about Christ and what he's done in his glory. And I love the way one pastor put it. One pastor put it this way. He said, as glorious as this news of union with Christ is for you, you are not at the center of this story. Jesus is. It's his party. He's the guest of honor. But because of him, you are invited. You're invited into the grandest party and the greatest community there could ever be, the life of the triune God himself. You have been given access, not eventually, not maybe someday, but now, having been united with Christ through faith. And if you have this life, this communion with God through faith in Christ, then let us live that new life out day by day and let that new life assure you of your hope that will never end. Let's pray. Father, this is really a stunning good news that you've given us in these verses. That if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, if we have been united to him by the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit living in us, then we've been raised with him We've died to our old self, to death, to sin, to this world. We've been raised to new life with him such that we're hidden with Christ and God. Oh, may we live that out, seeking, loving, pursuing, setting our minds on the things that are above where Christ is with the hope that on a day that's coming, we will appear in glory with him forever. Thank you, Father, for this salvation. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry the Westminster Pulpit.